New Meta Podcast, uh, episode 14, here with David from Donya Farms. Uh, thanks for coming on, David. Well, thanks for having me. So, you know, we keep sure it pretty too much. I can add. Or go ahead, Nick. On. No, no, no. Sorry. It's like we keep it pretty casual here. So, um, you know, um, let's start with like a, a bit about yourself and then let's get into your, your business. Well, I'm uh, one of three brothers that uh, own and operate Donia Farms. Um, I don't know. I grew up in the lower mainland here, went to school in Iowa for a year, and then came back to BCIT, then went off to Holland for a half a year and came back. And then um, in 20, I don't know, 16, I think it was, 15, we started to brand Donia Farms. So I started on that side. So. Awesome. Where do you fall in the uh, the birth order of the uh, the brothers there, Dave? I'm the middle. You're middle, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. The best so, of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. And then I should mention my my mom and dad are still heavily involved. So, and now actually my wife and well, Oliver Smith and others are involved in some capacity or the other. So very much a family yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. I'd say it's sort of run by family, and but we got a lot of good employees underneath that Absolutely. add good value to our business. Fantastic. So, I mean, could you maybe give us a background on on maybe like the, the business as a whole? Like, obviously, the the brand, um, you know, of packaged goods came after the the farm. So maybe take us back to like the the start even before the actual packaged goods. So uh, the dairy farm was founded in 55. Um, I'm not sure they called it founding in 55, but uh, my grandparents immigrated from the Netherlands and he worked um, in the peat bog here and did a bunch of odd jobs, saved up enough money, bought a couple cows and rented some uh, land in Surrey and started from there, grew it up and then acquired the place that we're on today I think in the late fifties, couldn't ever get a straight answer. And then um, we farmed here ever since. So in roughly 1990, around there, my dad took over from my grandpa running it. And my one uncle was involved as well. Um, and I don't know if you've ever drive by Donia Farms here, you see a bunch of black Frisian horses or you did now we're down to one. We have those because in 1990 when dad wanted more control and to get my grandpa or who i call paka out of his hair a bit he said go get a hobby so my grandpa flew to holland and picked up three horses and brought them back with him so uh and then through the 90s he bred those and dad grew the farm up from i don't know probably 300 cows to 800 and today we now milk close to 1200 cows and in 16 once we all graduated university thought the best way to keep a family business together is to diversify and sort of spread out the responsibility so we um yeah we created the donia farms brand and started marketing our first product the kefirs and then uh later on started to do the grass-fed milks. And today we sell 
we no longer sell the kefir product, but we do grass-fed milk, butter, yogurt, and uh, some new products uh, in the immediate future. Well, that awesome. sounds exciting. Little, a little, uh, just put it out there. You're not going to tell us what they are. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> not too, yet. too soon. Okay. So, uh, you know, tell us about maybe the thought process of uh, going into packaged goods. Like, what what was the opportunity that you guys saw? Like, you know, may, maybe take us through this for somebody that, you know, like, and, and give it maybe the context of, you know, well, like, how did you identify this opportunity? Well, in so the way the Canadian supply management system works is you have a pool of milk is how we all call it. But, you know, if you have seven or let's say 10 farms in the lower mainland and you have a bunch of brands, whether that's Avalon, Saputo, Island Farms, you name it, they have no connection to the farm. So the BC Milk Marketing Board goes and says, oh, Saputo, you need some milk. You'll grab from farm one, two, three, and four and we'll deliver that to you. And so as a farmer, you never could say, hey, or you never is probably not the right word, but in the recent future or recent past, you can't, you could never say, hey, oh, if you wanna buy my milk, um, you know, buy it for like buy Saputo or Island Farms. Um, it didn't work that way. You had, there was a big disconnect. And we always right, so like that, that's the processor versus the producer. It's like yeah. the processor might get milk from many farms. So, and, and you don't know where yours is going necessarily either. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Yeah. Like you have a bit of an idea, but there was never a connection. Right. And at the time there was always this talk about traceability and transparency in the food supply system and all of that. And, and then the fact that we did tours and you couldn't tell anybody and, so we decided, you know, that what an opportunity that is. We have pretty high exposure where we are. So we decided to do this traceable milk program where anything that we produce on our farm or any product we get processed, we'll use milk from our farm. So we can then tell a story the whole way through and we can communicate with consumers. And there's a lot of misconception in dairy, right? There are, so it was hard to tell a story unless you had a product on the shelf. So we felt like, Hey, yeah, there is a demand for people to, to want to know where their food is originating. And then for us, it was, Hey, it's a great opportunity for us to educate about, you know, modern dairy farming practices and what we do. And, you know, I say it humbly all the time. We're no different than anybody else. We're just going to tell a story and we're going to make that connection and, remove the unknown from somebody's mind and hopefully make them more comfortable with dairy. That's a great point. I mean, you know, what's interesting about the story is that at the end of the day, like everybody has this story and I think you guys are telling it in a great way. And, you know, people want to understand where things come from, right? Like that's really what it comes down to. Um, I think that uh, the general public maybe is like less trusting of things unless they understand where it does come from because, you know, we've, I think we've been exposed to, you know, one too many like investigative, you know, journal reports where it's like, hey, like this thing happened at this mass processing, you know, thing and like this happened and, you know, we don't know where it came from. And at least now, you know, with this new model, people can have a bit more comfort 
in knowing like, well, like, you know, the, the animals have been treated like, like it well, um, I know where it's coming from. It's like, there, there's like an actual like name behind from the actual farm standpoint, from the actual producer rather than the manufacturer. Yeah, we, we always talk about this generational disconnect in agriculture or the agrarian life cycle. So I don't know about either. I, I don't sure about either of you, but do you guys have an aunt or an uncle in the dairy farm or in any sort of farming practice? Yeah, I, my uncle actually has like a couple of farms, but, uh, but beyond that, like my, uh, my grandfather's family had some farms and they had some dairy and it's like, it's just very different. Like you sold to your neighbors and to your, your community direct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, and J, J. Yeah. My, my, my grandpa was a cattle rancher and my uncle was a cattle rancher on the beef side. So. Um, yeah. But so, so that you realize that that's extremely rare, right? Right. Like right. Most people. <laughs> very, very. It is. Yeah, I, had, yeah. I had a stat way back in the day when I first started this, like, you know, I have young kids. I had a better chance of my kid being born with a 11th toe than the average Canadian meeting the dairy farmer. Wow. And, and, and that is a, a, it's a scary fact, but you know, that's my, I guess, millennial generation. And if you go down, it's even worse, but you go up, a lot of people had some sort of connection to a farm or an aunt or an uncle. And that's why I asked you guys, like, right. And you go up further in that agrarian lifestyle or lifestyle was way closer to the family. So you had an understanding, you spent time on a farm and, you know, so you, like, uh, you basically always had a family member somewhere down the line where like you spent your summer on a farm or like totally like, and, and the further back you went, the more likely that was to happen. And now it's pretty yeah, unlikely. And, and then, so you, when you don't know, you believe what you see and you talk about those investigative journal reports, like, that's not the norm. And that's a one-off situation. Like the, the latest and one. It's usually not Canadian, you know, usually you're getting, but people assume that the standards are here as they are in other countries, right? You know, I, I don't think geography matters as much as recognizing that's a single person, right? Like, or one operation or, or, or not even an operation, like a few rogue people, like that's the thing, right? So, you know, information is power, information is comfort in most cases, right? So when, when you don't know, it really starts to creep in your mind, well, what could be? So that was our whole thing was trying to eliminate that. Well, and, and give a face to the product, right? I think that, um, you know, the, the challenge with, uh, you know, why the, the whole movement, I guess, to a more like niche model, or I guess like a more, I, I don't want to call it, um, I don't want to call it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the artisanal thing. It's like, yeah. I think, like, I mean, I think that that's like a very broad word, but I think that what is happening is that there's a fundamental distrust from like very, very, very large businesses um, where unless people think the regulation is incredibly strict, like there's less trust than there was before. I think that like we've reached like an inflection point somewhere in the last 20 years where people actually trusted really, really big businesses um, more than they might have like a smaller medium business. But that sort of has like kind of like tipped on its head, you know, maybe like a couple of years back, right? Where, you know, it's like, 
it went from like, oh, there's security in a big business to, oh, like they'll do anything for a dollar kind of thing, right? right. And that's kind yeah. of led to this, well, hey, like I want to know where things come from. Uh, I want to be able to, you know, buy local and support my community. Um, you know, if I'm buying something, I don't want the, the proceeds to, you know, go to another country um, and be spent somewhere else where I don't even know where it's going. Like it's kind of like led down this path, but I think it's kind of, you know, the pendulum going from the, the small, you know, town owned shops to the big business. Now it's kind of coming, coming back slowly, but surely as people become more aware of, uh, how the economy actually works. Well, you mentioned the word trust, right? And that's, uh, that's so powerful in your motivation and, and what we have, right? And I always ask people like, well, why, why do you think we have organic? Well, it's because you lost trust in what the farmer was doing. So now you're relying on a certification, you're putting your trust in a certification for that, right? And you talk about, you know, being misled. Like that's one too, it's like, if you knew, and if it was your neighbor or you had that connection that we talked about earlier, you wouldn't care about whether it's organic or not because you trust that person, right? It's saying like, you know, depend, whatever you're buying, you're not asking them for their certification or their insurance policy. When you go to a shoe store, you just, they're local, you trust them. You have a, you know, that's just there. So, but yeah, that pendulum swinging, I think you're totally right. I think it's gonna be hard for, like brick and mortar, but smaller brands are definitely becoming more prominent and more powerful. Like look at craft beer in British Columbia, it's huge, right? Molson's was slow to adopt and then really is trying to catch up now. And do we see that happen in dairy? I'm not sure, but we'll definitely try. I think that, yeah, you mentioned a good point around trust, right? So like it's, it's the whole like, well, you know, when you're really big, when you're a really, really big business, like multinational level, one thing can't really disrupt your business that much. It's like, oh, like, you know, something happened in BC and with our product and it was bad and there was a recall, but it's completely localized to like one area, right? So it's like, they're like, ah, like, it's like, well, what's the, what's the penalty? Like, what's the, you know, incentive to change? It's like, well, we're down, you know, 20% in this region, but the rest of the United States and Canada are up like 5%, which, you know, means that we're up overall because like of the scale of this thing. Whereas like smaller businesses, it's like reputation means more to you. Right. It's like when you hear somebody have a bad experience with like a multinational or even like a national level company, people are like, Oh yeah. Like call center, blah, 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 whatever it is. Like, it's like, Oh yeah. Like people like they don't even register it. Like they're like, Oh yeah. Like that's normal. Like you don't get good service, you don't get good product. Like there's defects, like whatever it is. People, smaller businesses have a, like a paradoxically harder time in, in a way where people actually expect more from them, even though they actually don't have the complexity. But like as a business owner, you end up having to say to yourself, well, I need to produce a very, very, very good product, a better product in fact, than my larger competitors because this is just like the, the game the small business owner plays. Well, I think you're, you're 100% correct. Yeah. <laughs>
And, you, and small businesses have to actually manage that trust. Like I think of when, when I'm looking at uh, like a boutique type product somewhere, you know, even if I'm buying it from local retail, I'll often like go to Amazon and just check it out there. Just check out the customer. I, I use Amazon more for consumer reviews just to kind of build the trust in the product than I do to actually purchase stuff. Cause, cause I, I like buying stuff in person. I'm, I'm, I'm not a millennial. Thanks for lopping me into the millennials before David, but I'm, I'm not. And, uh, but it, but it is, it's, it's, it's huge for, for a smaller, you know, smaller brands to, to manage that trust and manage those reviews and, and, uh, you know, to be able to hold that trust with the consumer. You always read a review. Somebody's always mad at it. It's like, right. You, you find the five star reviews and you find the one star review to see, okay, this guy's really in love and this guy's a nut job. So let's maybe find a two or a three. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll get a real opinion on, I don't know. At least that's how I, I read. The I never read the fives or ones, to be honest. It's like, I look for the proportion <laughs> of fives to ones. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, like there's a lot of fives and very few ones. Yeah. But then I like, I kind of ignore, like I read one or two of the ones just to see like, Oh, like sometimes it's usually, especially with like like B2B businesses, a lot of them are kind of like, or like, um, or software products they are usually like a customer service issue where like, right. it, like somebody yeah. slipped through the cracks kind of thing. But, yeah. you know, it's usually like the three and four star reviews that like tell the real story where they're like, here's the pros, here's the cons. And like, this is why it's not five, but yeah. it's, you know, it's not one either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's interesting, right? I, I think that, you know, um, to bring it back to like the point of like, I, I guess like small business is that, um, you know, like so much of a small business owner's um, livelihood rests on public opinion to some degree that like it forces your product to be really good. Like it, it you, you have no choice because like if you burn, you know, like one client or, you know, like a, a distribution center, it's like, well, getting another one isn't particularly easy. Right. And, and that becomes like a fairly like significant problem. So like you actually have to run your operations like really, really, really well. And that usually comes from, you know, putting in more work. So like people like always ask me, it's like, well, what's the, like, you know, I've worked in businesses that are five people. I've worked in businesses that, you know, like in our peak season, we were like tens of thousands. And the challenge is always this. It's like, when you have like that level of people, when you have like 10,000 people, there's always somebody there to watch something. But even if you have like a hundred people, like there are cracks in that system that generally the owners of the business fill, which are like nowhere near their job description, right? Like, it's like, if you have a position and it's like, oh, like this thing isn't getting done. It's like, but it needs to get done. Guess I'm doing it, right? And, and I think that like plays into the trust of it. It's like, you're trusting that this business that isn't like a multinational it's like somebody is out there or like a group of small, like a small group of people within the business are out there making things right and, and ensuring that it's good. Yeah, it's, I just think that multiple hat thing, that's the like, uh, the arch nemesis of a small business. And that's what I think makes like as much you need to have all that customer service or that superior product that multiple hat thing makes that so much more challenging because you can't get good at one thing or you're spread so thin, right? Like, 
I, I mean, from, from my side, I, on a given morning, I'll be doing financials for the dairy farm. And then in the afternoon, I'm doing art design. And then in the, I don't know, sometime during the middle of the day, reviewing production numbers and your, your left side, right side of the brain is firing all day, right? Where if you're in that bigger business, you're more or less onto one side. It's yeah. You're doing one thing all, doing all day long thing, for sure. All day long. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that I find it, um, it's interesting that small business and when you go back to retail, it's, in, it's not to complain, but in Canadian retail, you're reliant on really three people, right? Or three big corporations to give you the opportunity to sell to all these customers, right? So you talk about making a mistake. Well, you burn the bridge with one of those guys. It's pretty hard to maintain your business long term. Like, yeah. And especially in our category where it's higher volume, low margin, you need those turns. You need that to move through. And, you know, it's, it's just a little bit different, right? Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess this is the challenge really at the end of the day. It's like, you know, um, selling direct is sometimes an option, but not to get the turns that you need in a lower margin business, right? Like if, if you're creating everything like, you know, not at scale and you're just trying to support yourself, but like, it's like, you know, sometimes going online only makes a ton of sense, but yeah, like in, in certain business models, like selling online direct to consumer, very difficult, right? It's just, yeah. you need that mass distribution. Well, plus, I, I don't know, I, I think it's might be changing. I'm curious to know what you guys think, but do you think people are more and more going towards, I'll go to multiple locations to get my stuff or particular groceries or do they want yeah. a one-stop shop? Like. I can't see myself or my wife being like, well, I'm going to log on to DonnieFarms.com, I'll buy my milk, then I'm going to go to, you know, Keen's Produce and get my produce. And, you know, I, I still, I believe there is a spot for online, and, but it's, you, you need it's that, tough. that mass, you need that movement, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that there's like a fully online. Oh, yeah. Go there's ahead. a combination to be had, I think, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and I'll say like upfront that it really depends on the business model. It depends on the margins. It depends on like the unit economics of a sale and like the cost structure. But, you know, there, there's a couple of things to unpack, I guess. Like number one, uh, consumer behavior and, you know, and to the consumer, like their time is important. And sometimes they're willing to trade time for savings or money or value. And sometimes they're not. So like the one-stop shop like Amazon, it's like, look, like, is Amazon the best? It's like, maybe, maybe not. Like, do they have the best products? Like, definitely not. Like sometimes they have really good products, but there's also a sea of knockoffs and things like that. So like, why do people fundamentally put up with Amazon? Well, A, it's like cheapish, depending on what you're buying. Um, but often like it can be uh, the same price as going to a store and buying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but really like what Amazon does is that it's like, it it's, it's a time saver, right? It's like, all it is is saving you time. Like if you look at like Uber, it's the same thing. Like, well, why does Uber dominate? And, and, you know, why do cab cab companies lose revenue when Uber comes to town? It's like, well, because if you call a cab in like the lower mainland, it takes an hour for it to get to you. Well, an Uber can get here in five minutes, 
that's why Ubers knock these companies out, right? So like it's a customer trading money for time. And like, to your point around like the big store versus like going to many small markets, the value equation needs to be good enough for you to stop and make that trade. So like, for example, we buy our, all of our produce from like all of our like vegetables, et cetera, from like farm markets rather than like the, the bigger brands, right? Because there, there is at least a perception from us that like, we're going to get a better product in doing so. Right. Um, and, and there's like a value in that. So like, I think for online, when it comes to like a direct to consumer model, even if you're say in a grocery, like there needs to be like a clever way to bundle it in a way where like, it doesn't become onerous to the customer, meaning like a subscription model or like, um, reminders that say like, Hey, you bought this basket of goods last time. Do you just want to reorder it? to make it easy for people so that they don't have to do too much work because if they do too much work they're like ah i'll just get everything at the one-stop shop yeah and and this is like also like a you know it's a separate thing but it it really is dovetailed into it it's brand right like brand and the, the perception of brand can create value and if you create a brand that is well aligned to the product enough and the products of high quality, what ends up happening is that people will go out of their way for it. Right. And say like, well, I'm willing to go online and get a direct because, you know, I believe I'm in that brand. Yeah. Yeah. Because I believe in that brand. I believe the, yeah. for the values that they stand for. I believe like, you know, it's like, Oh, it's like a locally owned like business. Like I'm going to order from them. Yeah. Um, but that's about values alignment right like be beyond everything else but if but if you don't have that strong brand it's like well now you're just competing in a sea of other products that you know are fundamentally you know in in are similar to you um you know people buy brands they don't buy the the product in of itself first people decide well do i want this product number two is like well what brand aligns with my beliefs the most Mm -hmm. and then if they align with it closely enough they'll go out of their way and trade their time in order to acquire that product over others. Right. I have a question for you both of you on sort of along those lines. Yeah. How much of food alone, how much do you think people buy based on brand? And how many people, how much do you think people buy based on price? It depends on their economic situation. My, my oh, wife, that's, my a, wife that, that's a junky answer. Nick. My wife, my wife is a hundred percent brand packaging. And if the price <laughs> is the highest, then she wants it. Me, I'm, I'm about 30% that, but I mean, yeah, it is, it really depends on, you know, on, well, on Nick, you situations and, uh, yeah. you know, time, like Nick has the time to go buy vegetables from farm markets. I've got four kids. Like we, we don't have time to do anything. So like, it's what is the most convenient way to get vegetables in our fridge? We will take that route, you know? So well, there is, uh, we, my wife and I had that discussion there, Jay. Yeah. I was like, I was like, Instacart's way more expensive, but I can right. get it when I need it. Exactly. And it's yeah. either, it's like, you're busy. So I got to get a babysitter or I get, you know, like that's how it works for us. Right. Yeah. But Nick, I want an answer. Like I want, I want a percentage. I would say that like in my head like it depends on the area I guess like in 
I think in the lower mainland, because of the cost of living is so high, I think that short answer, like, like if a person buys always based on brand, like 20, 30% max. Now, the caveat to that is, is that I think that 90% of people buy on brand based on what matters to them. Right. So for example, like, like it, it depends what matters to you. Right. Like, so it's like, like some people, it might be their car and the brand is super important for other people. They're like, I don't care what kind of brand car I drive. It's, it's of no significance to me. Right. For other people, it might be where they buy vegetables. Like I'm, I must buy them from like these kinds of stores because they align with my beliefs or these types of products, um, you know, for, but, but I think that here's, and maybe this is like a needlessly long answer, but I think that like, as a society, we've gotten to a place where we're bombarded with so many messages that we, it's hard to care about everything. Right. So there's some places like from like a brand perspective where you're like, okay, I'm buying these products of like this area where like, they're just a necessity or I like, I just need them around the house. I don't really care anymore, like what brand they are. Mm -hmm. But if I become aware that like they're impacting the environment negatively, or there's an opportunity to like support a local business by buying a certain type of brand, then it's like, I might change my mind and it might become important to me. I guess my point is, is that like, like I said before, like maybe 20, 30% of people buy on brand and brand alone all the time. But I think that 90% of people buy based on brand selectively based on what matters to them. Right. And they might not that have that. Sure. They might not be having that internal conversation about it, but just kind of that's the law exactly of attraction. It. They're going to be attracted towards, you know, that value alignment for sure. And, and this is why brand matters, right? Like, and it's the whole, like, you know, don't try to sell to people that, you know, don't believe what you believe thing. Where, and, and trying to become all things to all people because then you stand for nothing. Yeah. Because if something, if a product, say there's one of these categories, one of these like 90% people that I'm talking about where there's a product or a type of product where you're not particularly, you know, it, it's not a big deal what brand you buy. If, if the product has done a really good job of branding themselves well, and it's aligned in alignment with some other products of other categories that like that does matter to you. If the brand translates that and like mimics that in some way, people will subconsciously just grab that product. Totally. Right. And this is where we're getting into things like, well, what are the demographic psychographics of this product? It's like, well, you know, it's for this age group. Uh, they care about these things. They care about local. They care about like environment. They care about like, all these things it's like we can reflect this in the look and feel of this brand so when they're in front of the shelf like even though they might not care about the specific product type they see the brand and subconsciously go to grab it because they're like this is like these other things that are of like high importance to me right mm. and that's where brand can influence so like i guess like my answer is also like that in the sense that there's a subconscious element to this that isn't like, a, oh, I'm buying this brand because it aligns with what I believe. 
there's like, like that's where it's like, I think 20, 30%. The other, the rest of it is like more subliminal than that. It's like really like, oh, like I'm reaching for this and I don't really know why, but it's because it's like aligned to what I believe. Right, right. I don't think it's a conscious process for that many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting because <clears throat> I look at yogurt, right? There's so many brands and I'd say there's so many really strong brands and you talk to people and you ask like, well, do you buy yogurt on sale? And do you buy yogurt just as a brand all the time? It's like, well, I've yet to find someone that tells me they buy yogurt that's just on sale. Yet mm-hmm. 70 or 80% of yogurt is sold on deal. Right. So, it's like, well, if you, it, it's on your subconscious thing, right? It's like, well, yeah. are you subconsciously? Yeah, I like Donia Farms yogurt, but when push comes to shove, you may make a different choice. And- but do you, do you think that might be, no, no, I'll say this because we have, we have the same, we, we, I mean, for a lot of things, not just yogurt, we have the same brand always for that item. Um, but, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're shopping and you see it for sale, you know, you might buy three at that time, even though, you know, you might have gone in for one, Just you're going to buy it no matter yeah. what, but if it's on sale, you might buy three. So that might affect, you know, that's well, no, because we, we measure mul- multiple purchases and it's, it's okay. just, it's interesting. Like the, yeah, you're, it's short it's a price no, conscious shopper. Like, look, like, yeah. I, I mean, I think but, it's, but it's, like, it, it's like, I the think cost of you're right. Is issue, right. Yeah. Yeah, but there is a, I think you're, you're seeing a shift of people and I think you, you, COVID is showing people like, you know, you know, food is part of my life and it is an important part of my life where I think if you go back a number of years, it was like, just give me the cheapest, quickest thing. Right. I want to spend my money other places, but I think there is a, there's, there's a, a level movement of awareness about, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say awareness. I'd say like valuing food more, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that when I say awareness, I mean like there's a level of awareness of of what we're actually putting into our bodies now. I mean, there's I mean, yeah. Netflix has you know 29 documentaries alone on that, right? So it's the there is a huge there is a level of awareness for people that care which is, I, I'd say that population is growing too, the amount of people that care of what they put in their bodies um, because yeah. of that awareness, right? I, you guys are supposed to ask the question, so I wanna ask this. Uh, On that awareness and this like desire to, um, you know, be aware of what you put in your body, do you think that Instagram, like fitness fad has influenced people's eating habits? this like aspiration to be well I, I think that it's definitely made people like more self-conscious of themselves <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. at, at the very least well um, I just like totally. you talked about the subconscious person's decision right so I wonder yeah. like you know it's, it's a and I'm reading this book called the psychology of social media mm. and the, the effects of your brain just looking at the stuff is amazing yeah. it, it's so scary actually i would say it's, well, it's like sitting scary, in front of a right? slot machine right unfortunately yeah 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 but not like it goes further than that i highly recommend the book i can't remember the exact title from it but it's by the guy that does the marketing for reddit and right. uh yeah I, I just i i read a bunch of this and i thought boy like is there is there's this correlation like it might be uh might be a little Look, subconscious like, reason you eat healthier 
I'm a big believer in social media as like an advertising tool. In fact, I believe in it so much that I tell my friends to cancel their Facebook accounts. Mm. Like, and I'm, and this is not a joke. Like, look, like buying ads on social media are, is so effective, like Mm. so effective. But what you have to understand that social media, like, like Facebook, you know, all these platforms, they're not selling you ad space. Like that is the, that is not the product that they're selling. And like, there's this big misconception, social media ads that are, that businesses are buying, you are buying influence and you are buying like a one or even like a fraction of a degree of changing somebody's mind. That's what you're actually buying. Like you're buying like influence and you are buying like the ability to potentially change somebody's mind. And if it didn't work, the ad wouldn't be worth anything. So like the the actual product that is social media is like on one side, social media generates attention. So like the platforms themselves need to garner like the public's attention. And then they sell that to businesses to inject ads and the algorithms from these platforms are designed in a way where the ads being shown to specific people are based on their behavioral interaction with the platform. Thereby, they're injecting the ads that they believe will influence the, the, a certain type of person the most when they show them. And that's actually what you're buying. And that's why like, you know, ad costs on Facebook in the last year have like basically doubled and people are, and, and they have more demand than ever because it works. And so I tell people all the time, it's like, get off, get off social media. Like, it's like, you have kids, like definitely don't let them on it. Like it, it, because it's too good. It's like, here, here's the problem. Like machines, like these algorithms and machines are not yet smarter than humans. They're not yet smarter than humans at their best, but they are smarter than humans at their worst. And as humans, we can't go around all day long guarded about every single thing that happens around us. Like we can't walk around with a permanent shield around us and being like, what is the implication of this? And that's the problem with social media is that the algorithm, it's like, when, what do you do? Like, it's like you, you, you work a hard day or you go to school or whatever it is, you sit down and you pull up your phone and you're, you're relaxing. It's like, well, like, okay. So now you're getting influenced by these like ads that you're seeing. Well, like, it's like, that's the whole trick to this thing, right? Like it's too good. The, the, the behavioral algorithm of these platforms are superior to human weakness. And that's why they can influence you significantly. So I tell people like, don't have an account. And it doesn't matter how many people I tell them not to have one, people will still have it. They're like, oh, but I need to stay connected with friends or oh, like for the family pictures are there or oh, whatever it is. So I could like scream this on the rooftops. And by the way, found like, People that were some of the first 20 employees at Facebook, et cetera, none of them have the, the actual app. Their kids don't have the app. Like there's a reason for it because they understand how, yeah. how good the technology is and yeah. they understand how, like, how much it can change people's minds. Yeah. So much so that they're like, they respect it so much that they're just not on it. Yeah, it's a fascinating. Uh, it's a 
yeah, it's something I think it's the biggest um, lab test that we're doing on humankind today is the social media with with very little to no regulation, right? Because like the go governments yeah. don't understand the technology and how it works because the people that are running these companies are like very, very smart and government wages are so low in comparison to the wages that they're getting in the private sector that they can't, the government can't get their hands on people that could actually help them navigate this thing because the governments wouldn't pay them like even 10% what these other companies would pay them, right? But I also think there's a, something to be said by, I don't think they mean to do what they do. I think- They don't understand the implication at all. Yeah, but I don't think they're designing the app to have the effect that they are. I think what it, it's a similar, you have a piece of art behind you, right? It's like, I can interpret that art a hundred different ways from you or, or Jay, right? So, and I, that's the one thing I got out of this. Like, there's no way Zuckerberg was smart enough to design an app with like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in his head or all at the same like time, the, like all these models. the Floridian yeah. model. Like there's not a chance that he knew any of that. It just yeah. all came about. And then you have guys that want to optim or they want to exploit it. So they asked them to add this feature, add that. And right. Right. I mean, that's where I think that, you know, I think it is dangerous and it's risky, but that, Everybody's got to be aware of what they're getting themselves yeah, into. Like, so. There's positives and negatives, I guess, to it, right? Like there, there are significant positives. So it's not all bad. But I think that it's like, to your point, well, there's some people that are going to use, you know, anything that's powerful for their own devices. And maybe, you know, the reasoning behind using it is somewhat unscrupulous, right? Um, yeah. Like, you know, in a society that's becoming increasingly polarized, it's like, well, like how much of it is social media's fault at this point? I think a lot of it, right? Because the algorithm, because the algorithm, all it cares about is keeping you on your screen as long as possible, right? Well, if there isn't some sort of like ethical consideration behind trying to keep people on the screen as long as possible, you're just going to keep feeding people whatever you need to as an algorithm to get them on the screen more. And whether that information is accurate or inaccurate or, you know, in your best interest or not in your best interest, it's like, well, the algorithm doesn't care because it doesn't have an emotion, doesn't have an ethical compass either. Yeah, or, or it doesn't actually really know. Or it doesn't really know. It's just like, I believe that behaviorally this person will, you know, most likely stay on this, you know, application longer if I show them this. So I'm going to show them this. It's like, what's the accuracy of this? It's like, ah, all I know is that the person's going to stay on for longer. Yeah. like and that's how and that's how the system works and sure like they've been trying to fix that recently but i mean like we're talking about the last like six months to a year like not the you know 10 years before that so it's it, again it's like you know machine strength has become stronger than human weakness that that's really like the, the lesson you know but i think they've done something right because i don't know very many people right now that use facebook right you've moved on to it because it became too much of the BS, right? Like there was too much. It didn't, I don't know. It just, it wasn't a pleasant in, uh, experience anymore. It was something that was either full of ads or it was a bunch of Looney Tunes talking about something or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that it's like, look, like, 
what, what we're seeing is that, you know, people are going to different platforms, so they're keeping their old accounts or just maybe less active on them, right? Yeah. And it's just or different scroll way faster. Yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, like TikTok, like as an example, it's like huge uptake, especially recently, like we're starting to run ads on there for people and like they're doing real well and the cost is real cheap, right? And it's like, it's super interesting, but it only works for certain demographics of age because, you know, there's certain age groups that are just like not on there. And there's certain types of people that just, you know, like certain things just won't work. But, you know, there's always like something popping up. So it's like, it's gonna be interesting to see what the next generation of social media is. Will, Will it actually grow? Or will, you know, the powers that be like the more powerful uh, established incumbents in that, you know, field just see some, you know, upstart and just buy them out and like, you know, squish them before they ever get off the ground. It'll be interesting to see that. Or just copy. Or, or just copy. I mean, yeah. that's what happened to Snapchat, right? It's just like, well, you know, Instagram was very different before Snapchat came around. Yeah. And now we have, yeah. you know, stories and now we have like all of these other features that like were never there before. It's like, I mean, they just copied like, you know, Snapchat refused to sell. So Facebook's like, great. Like, we'll just copy we'll just every single yeah. feature you have. Yeah. Hey, but guys, I need to run here. Sorry. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Definitely appreciate it. Um, and and thanks great, for Dave. Appreciate it, man. Great chat, guys.